Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. And in fact, a brand new five-star review just came in recently from our new friend Marky B. Beth. I apologize if I butchered that in any way. It's all one word on iTunes, but send me a message on Twitter. Let me know if I screwed that up. So he or she says that this fine podcast is, quote, Another must play for me. I'm on the road all week, so I need to stock up on podcasts to keep me going. Henry's commentary is hilarious and is a great look back at a lot of wrestling I don't even remember. I'm guessing I missed a bunch flipping over to Nitro all those years, so this is perfect. Keep up the awesome job. Fantastic review there, and let me say that I was very much in the same boat as you, Marky, or Mark, or Beth. I was loyal to Raw, but every now and then I would have to switch over to Nitro if I knew something big was going on. And by the way, on the night we're about to cover in this episode, I can guarantee I switched over to Nitro along with many other viewers because, well, stay tuned for the wrap-up at the end of the podcast and you'll see what I mean. But anyway, thank you very much for that incredibly generous review, and I hope I can continue to entertain you on your long car rides, and I will just assume you are secretly a wrestler for WWE who is going from town to town. One more quick note up front. Last week I had asked why the WWE Network had to dub over the Insane Clown Posse's theme song for the oddities, even though that very song was put out on WWF The Music Volume 3. Well, several people got in touch with me to share the obvious point that the WWE would still need to pay ICP royalties, even though the song was on a WWE album. I erroneously assumed that the WWE would have full ownership of it, but that was just me being an idiot. And on a related note, if you want another example of this, you can reference the fact that we are currently on the Highway to Hell towards SummerSlam, but you damn sure won't be hearing ACDC's song Highway to Hell played on the WWE Network anytime soon, like it was initially played on Raw and the pay-per-view in 1998. I can only imagine how much that would cost them. Alright, so with all that being cleared up, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, August 17th, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from Des Moines, Iowa, the home state of questionable Endeavor Network founder and two-time Raw Attitude podcast guest host, Andy. Quick plugs, be sure to check out Andy's horror podcast, The Shadowvane Podcast, as well as his anime podcast, Tuning Japanese, that's T-O-O-N-I-N-G, as in cartoon. But anyway, getting back to Raw, we open with a shot of Mr. McMahon's dressing room door, but then Stone Cold Steve Austin immediately comes into frame, starts banging on the door, and he even throws some random objects at it. I'm not exactly sure what Austin is upset about, because he and Vince haven't really been at each other's throats lately, and nothing happened to cause more tension between them last week on Raw or the previous night on Sunday Night Heat, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see why the WWF champion is so pissed off. Well, 
more so than usual. Cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs tonight include WWF Needs Class, Hey Sable, Honk Honk, Puke On Me Draws, and my personal favorite, Nitro, more like Shitro. Well done. Once the scanning of the crowd concludes, we see a hearse backing up into the arena. The front door then opens, and we see that the man who was driving it is... Stone Cold Steve Austin. Swerve! Considering the fact that we just saw him banging on Vince's door a few minutes ago, I guess we can assume that his way of taking out his frustrations is to carjack some unsuspecting mortician. Austin grabs a mic and says that Vince McMahon has 60 seconds to get to the ring, or he's going to spend the entire segment drinking the 23 cans of beer that he has left. Sure enough, Vince does indeed walk to the ring, but he isn't alone. He's accompanied by Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter, the forgotten third stooge. Austin says that Vince must be happy that he and The Undertaker lost the WWF Tag Team titles last week on Raw, but Stone Cold is fine with that because it means that he and Taker are no longer bound together as a team. Tonight, he's going to whip The Undertaker's ass and stuff him into that hearse, and he'll do the same thing to Vince if he gets in his way. And that is actually the end of the segment. I'm not sure why Austin had to bring Vince out face-to-face to tell him that, but there you have it. Will The Undertaker show up to confront Stone Cold tonight? We shall find out. We then segue into our first match of the evening, a triple threat match between Owen Hart, Ken Shamrock, and Dan the Beast Severn. Yes, that's right, folks. Shamrock and Severn will finally be in the same ring together, but Owen Hart will also be in there with them for some reason. And actually, for the first several minutes of this match, it was literally just Owen and Shamrock fighting each other while Severn stood off in one of the corners watching them go at it. Severn only got involved when Shamrock hit Owen with a belly-to-belly suplex and tried to pin him, but Severn then pulled Shamrock off of Owen before he could get the three count. Severn and Shamrock then stared each other down, but Owen snuck up on Shamrock and hit him with a German suplex before the two former UFC fighters could go at it. Eventually, Shamrock managed to put Owen into the ankle lock, but then Severn snuck up on Shamrock and put him into a dragon sleeper. Instead of breaking up the hold, Owen actually started kicking Shamrock while he was in the sleeper, and the referee called for the bell, so presumably Dan Severn won the match, I guess? Even after the bell rang, Severn refused to relinquish the sleeper, and Owen continued to put the boots to Shamrock. This caused Steve Blackman to run to the ring and start beating the crap out of Owen. Blackman then stared down Severn, so the beast started to walk away. However, when Blackman bent over to check on Shamrock... Severn put Blackman into the Dragon Sleeper as well. Owen then swooped in and started punching Blackman in the chest as Jim Ross speculated that Owen and Severn may be working together. Sure enough, when the beatdown was finished, Severn and Owen shared a high five, so it appears that these two are indeed new best pals. I only wish that this would lead to Dan Severn joining Owen in the Nation of Domination, but sadly that just isn't in the cards. Perhaps The Rock could have helped him develop a personality. After a commercial break, it is now time for our first Brawl for All fight of the evening, Bart Gunn versus The Godfather, who is accompanied by three of his finest hoes. The good news is that we are now in the semifinals of the Brawl for All tournament, so there are only a few fights left. The winner of this one will go to the finals to face the winner of Bradshaw versus Draws, which will occur later tonight. Strangely, while The Godfather is walking to the ring, Jerry the King Lawler makes a phone call to... President Bill Clinton while he's doing commentary. 
This episode of Raw actually aired on the same date that President Clinton admitted to having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, so clearly the WWF just wasn't willing to ignore that, even though it served no purpose whatsoever. In case you were wondering, the president said that the Godfather's hose would make great interns, and Lawler is going to check in with him again throughout the broadcast. Oh, joy. Before the fight can begin, the Godfather grabs a microphone and says that normally he would offer Bart a chance to skip the fight and spend the night with his hose, but tonight he's just going to whip Bart's ass instead. I guess we'll see how that plays out. Round one was pretty entertaining, with both men actually landing some solid shots to each other's faces. Bart appeared to hit with more of his punches, though, so the WWF's unofficial scoring had him ahead after the first minute. In round two, the Godfather actually started off very strong and appeared to stagger Bart with a few shots, but Bart took over in the second half of the round by absolutely leveling Godfather with some haymakers. In fact, with just one second left in the round, Bart caught Godfather in the face with a hard left hand, and Godfather fell to the mat. It was not a knockout blow, however, because Godfather was able to get back to his feet shortly thereafter. The referee checked on him and determined he would be able to continue for another round, but perhaps that might not have been the best decision. Sure enough, round three only lasted about 15 seconds because Bart went for the kill and absolutely murdered the Godfather with a right-handed haymaker to the face, and I would actually recommend you check this out because he just destroys that poor pimp. Once Bart's hand makes contact with Godfather's jaw, he falls to the mat and lands face down with his head hanging over the side of the ring apron, and there is no question that he's completely out of it. I mean, sweet Jesus, they may as well just load Godfather into that hearse that Stone Cold drove into the arena earlier. Seriously, though, if you're going to watch one Brawl for All fight, and I have no idea why you would, make it this one because it was easily the most entertaining of any of them so far. Good lord. And not only was I impressed, but in a recent shoot interview, the genius who came up with the idea for the Brawl for All was also quite impressed. I, I, this is what I'll never forget, though, man. I, I swear, this I'll never forget this. The Godfather. Yeah. This is a guy that's the real deal. This guy will kill you. I mean, this he's the real deal. I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, literally, you, anybody can go back and look. Bart hit him so hard. His eyes rolled to the back. I, I never in my life saw anybody get hit that hard. Nobody in the world expected any of that from Bart Gunn. Nobody, he wasn't even on anybody's radar. So anyway, that now makes two straight knockouts for Bart Gunn, and he will advance to the finals of the Brawl for All next week. And I will say, he did get a good-sized pop here for committing a homicide on the Godfather, so at least one person in this tournament is getting a reaction. Surely the WWF will capitalize on this and make Bart into a huge star, right? Stay tuned. We then cut backstage where a stationary camera is pointed at the door of the arena, waiting to see if The Undertaker will show up. But instead, Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman come into the frame, and they're angrily throwing things all over the place. Presumably they're trying to find Dan Severn and Owen Hart, but here's a quick tip for them. If you're constantly yelling, that will easily let them know that you're coming. Maybe try stealth mode next time. And up next, it's time for the Monday Night Raw debut of a very unusual superstar. Let's see if you can guess who it is from me playing about a minute of his theme song, which is one of the most beloved of all time by wrestling fans.
That's right, it is the raw debut of none other than Gangrel. For those of you who are not familiar with Gangrel, his gimmick is essentially that of a vampire, complete with fangs and a goblet of some sort of liquid, which is obviously supposed to be blood, but for some reason the announcers refuse to actually refer to it as blood. However, what is probably the most memorable aspect of Gangrel is his entrance. Instead of walking out from the locker room, he rises up from below the stage and through a circle of fire as though he was coming up from hell itself. It really is pretty fucking cool, and when you combine it with that excellent theme music, it's definitely one of my all-time personal favorite entrances. At least top three for me. Last night on Sunday Night Heat, Gangrel defeated Scott Taylor in his debut match, and tonight he's facing Taylor's tag team partner Brian Christopher, so... Uh, does that mean that Gangrel, the blood-sucking vampire from hell, is supposed to be a good guy, since he's going up against what is probably the most annoying tag team on the roster? I guess so. Also, as a quick side note, on the last episode of this podcast, I mentioned that there was a giant blood stain in the ring when Raw began, and I speculated it was from a dark match, which had gone horribly wrong. The actual reason for the stain was that they had taped that episode of Sunday Night Heat before Raw, and Gangrel had spilled a bunch of blood in that corner of the ring. So now we know, and knowing is half the battle. But anyway, let's get back to Raw. So interestingly, before the match begins, we can see Edge in the crowd looking on intently as though he has taken a specific interest in Gangrel. I wonder if that will play itself out in the future. Hmm, I guess we'll see. As for the match itself, it was basically a quick squash victory for Gangrel, lasting just a little over a minute. The finish came when Gangrel reversed Brian Christopher's neckbreaker attempt into a jumping DDT, a move which he will eventually end up calling the Impaler. Your winner in his debut Raw match, Gangrel. Fun fact about our new vampire friend. At this point in time, he's actually the real-life husband of Luna Vachon, And I don't know about you, but I find it oddly fitting that those two weirdos ended up getting together and staying married for 12 years. So if you're currently single and wondering if you'll ever find the right person, just remember that Gangrel and Luna frickin' Vachon somehow found each other. You'll be alright. We then go backstage where Michael Cole was standing by with Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman. Cole was given the unfortunate task of having to tell Shamrock that Dan Severn will be Owen Hart's trainer for the Lion's Den match at SummerSlam. And, well, I'll just play Shamrock's promo for you here, because it comes across like one of those campy, over-the-top interviews from the 1980s. And folks standing by in dangerous territory is Michael Cole. Ken Shamrock, it's official. Dan Severn will be training Owen Hart for the Lion's Den match. You know what? You better just step back. Let me tell you something. They better have two hospital beds for Dan Severn and Owen Hart. Because what I'm doing with them, I'm going to break every little bone in their body. And you can count on that. And if you stand here much longer, I'm going to break every one of you. You better get out of there, Michael Cole. Severn and, uh, and Owen Hart have incited those men. Gotta love any promo where someone says to prepare a hospital bed in advance. Quality insanity there from your reigning king of the ring. After a quick commercial break, we go backstage with Michael Cole again, who just narrowly avoided being bludgeoned by Shamrock. This time, he's standing with the five members of DX, ready to interview them about the street fight they have scheduled against the Nation of Domination later tonight, when, wouldn't you know it, the Nation shows up and starts brawling with DX. Well, okay, it wasn't every member of the Nation. It was only The Rock, D'Lo Brown, and Mark Henry, because Owen Hart has already fled the building, and The Godfather, well, he's presumably on the way to the morgue after that brawl-for-all fight. But clearly, the lesson we can take away from this segment is that someone must not like Michael Cole because he keeps getting put into harm's way. 
We then segue back into the arena where it's time for our next match, Scorpio and Farouk versus the Disciples of Apocalypse, who are accompanied by Paul Ellering. And clearly, the WWF thought so highly of this contest that they once again had Jerry Lawler speak with the president as the match was going on. Right now, exclusive to Raw, I have live on the line the president, and he has a statement that he wants to make. Mr. President, are you there? Yes, King, I am. I'm having a great time watching Raw, too. And I understand you have a message for the nation. Yes, I do. Let me just say this to the American people. Despite all the scandals and all the fooling around, my job is getting done. The economy is up, inflation is down, and there are more jobs. You see, people, the more I perform at play, the better I perform at work. I mean, the more I take old Mr. One-Eye to the optometrist, the better I can see America's future. Folks, the more I'm getting it on, the more I'm getting it done. Thank you, and God bless America. What a great country. Well, that's 1998 for you. Also, in yet another testament to how highly the WWF thinks of this match, the backstage brawl between DX and the nation ends up spilling over into the entrance ramp, so of course the fans completely stop paying attention to the DOA versus Scorpio and Farouk match. And that's actually too bad because Scorpio ends up hitting a very nice 450 splash onto one of the DOA members, but because the referee is preoccupied by the DX nation brawl, he doesn't realize that Scorpio has his man pinned. The DOA then do their twin magic routine and pull a switcheroo, so when the referee finally does turn around, the healthy DOA member ends up rolling up Scorpio into an inside cradle and scoring the three count. The Disciples of Apocalypse are your winners, and that is actually the first loss for the team of Farouk and Scorpio after about one month of them teaming together. Meanwhile, WWF officials manage to separate DX and the nation, and that's a good thing because their street fight is coming up later in the... Wait, what's that? It's actually next... So why not just let them continue to fight then? Bizarre. But yes, that's right. When we come back from commercial, we get the full DX entrance, complete with their theme song and Triple H doing his Let's Get Ready to Suck It routine, which just seems rather odd since we're being told that they've constantly been at the nation's throats all night. But of course, they still have time to set off their pyro and make fun of Michael Buffer. Makes sense. When the nation enters, we see that each member of the group has their own weapons. D'Lo has a garbage can lid, Mark Henry has some cookie sheets, and The Rock has a ladder. You might want to pay attention to that last one, because it may end up being important later. And of course, because this is a street fight, most of the competitors are wearing jeans, because that's a street fight tradition. Also, because Owen Hart and The Godfather are not in this match, DX actually has a 4-on-3 advantage, which means the heels in this match are the underdogs. I guess no one told Vince Russo that it's supposed to be the other way around. The match is basically a standard garbage brawl, with each team wailing away on each other with their weapons. Jim Ross, ever the prognosticator, at one point says, quote, There's going to be some concussions resulting from this contest. To which Vince McMahon then presumably said, That's correct, but then I'll make them work a house show the next night anyway. At one point, the ring cleared enough for the rock to slam Road Dog, put a cookie sheet over his face, and set him up for the people's elbow. Unfortunately, when Rock attempted to jump over Road Dog, he accidentally kicked the cookie sheet away, so he ended up doing a regular people's elbow instead of the spot he planned. Whoopsie. Shortly after that, Jeff Jarrett, of all people, headed down to ringside, grabbed X-Pac's foot, and pulled him out of the ring. Jarrett and Pac then started brawling, and Southern Justice eventually came to the ring to help back up Double J. 
Once X-Pac was beaten down, just like he did to Draws last week, Jarrett pulled out an electric razor and cut off part of X-Pac's hair. The Outlaws then exited the ring to brawl with Southern Justice and provide some backup for X-Pac, but that left Triple H all alone in the ring with The Rock, D'Lo Brown, and Mark Henry. The three members of the nation then proceeded to beat the crap out of Hunter, with The Rock notably using his ladder as a weapon on several occasions. We also got a quick close-up of Triple H's face where we could see that his nose was bleeding, and with a nose that size, there was obviously a substantial amount of blood. The match ended when the nation left Hunter laying in the middle of the ring, and The Rock set up a ladder over Triple H's body. There was no pinfall, they just played the nation's music, and that was the end of the match, so I guess they won? Or maybe it was a no contest? Who knows? If Russo doesn't care, I guess I shouldn't either. However, with Triple H being laid out by a ladder, one can't help but wonder if that object will end up playing a part in their feud sometime soon. Just a guess. When we come back from commercial, Tiger Ali Singh and his manservant Babu are heading to the ring. Last night on Sunday Night Heat, Tiger continued to show us how low Americans will stoop to earn some money when he offered $500 for a planted fan in the crowd to chew and swallow a live worm. Just one worm? It's a shame the boogeyman wasn't in attendance for that one. He could have become a millionaire off one night's work. Tonight, Tiger tells us that most Americans are in poor physical condition, and he then shows us footage from earlier today of Babu doing sit-ups, running up the stairs of the arena, and working up a sweat. Unfortunately, Tiger says that Babu has not yet had time to shower, and to prove how low an American will go, he will offer $500 for anyone in the audience to come into the ring and lick Babu's unwashed feet. I should also mention that Jerry Lawler gets particularly tasteless during this segment, dropping such gems as this one. Can you imagine Asian toe jam? What would that smell like? That'd make Dr. Scholl's throw up. <laughs> Why Asian toe jam would be particularly worse than any other toe jam, I do not know, but hey, that's the king for you. So Babu then picks out a fan from the crowd, and it turns out to be some idiot with a band-aid on the left side of his head for some reason. Babu then proceeds to take off his shoes, which are the classic Iron Sheik pointy boots, by the way, and we see that, yes, he does indeed have quite a bit of toe jam on his feet. And sure enough, the planted fan then immediately gets down on the mat and proceeds to lick Babu's toes. This is really fucking gross. Even worse, the fan doesn't seem to be even the slightest bit grossed out as he then takes the $500 and celebrates with it. I'm starting to think that this segment may unintentionally be proving Tiger Ali Singh to be correct. Also, hopefully this will be the last time that I will ever need to utter the phrase toe jam when discussing an episode of Raw. Yeesh. Next up, we once again flash back to last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat where Jacqueline challenged Sable to an arm wrestling match of all things. Not quite as intriguing as their bikini contest, but sure, why not? When we come back to the arena, speaking of the bikini contest, Sable is actually holding the bikini contest trophy, which is rather odd considering the fact that she gave it to Luna Vachon last week after she won her match. Jacqueline then makes her way down the ramp as well. In the ring, an arm wrestling pedestal is set up with cushions for each woman's elbow, as well as a handle for each of them to grab onto with their free hands. Your referee for this epic encounter is Earl Hebner in what is surely one of the highlights of his prestigious career. As is the usual custom for arm wrestling matches, once they lock up, Jacqueline, in classic arm wrestling heel fashion, lets go of Sable's hand before the contest can begin, because you gotta stall to try and drag out any sort of drama here. 
Frankly, I'm not sure why she's stalling, since she is clearly much more jacked than Sable and would seem to have a massive advantage, but perhaps looks can be deceiving. Once the contest actually begins, they go back and forth multiple times, with each woman gaining the upper hand, no pun intended, on several occasions. At one point, it appeared that Sable was about to defeat Jacqueline, so Jackie once again yanked away her hand, and then she pushed the pedestal over on top of Sable, knocking her to the ground. Jackie then picked up the bikini contest trophy, held it up over her head, and smashed it over Sable's back. This caused Mark Marrow to run to the ring, and he immediately escaped with Jacqueline. The oddities then also headed to the ring to check on Sable, and Luna, in particular, was nearly on the verge of tears, which seems like a bit much. I realize it was a cowardly attack, but come on, that trophy was made out of friggin' plastic. She'll be fine. We then cut backstage where Michael Cole was with Val Venus. Apparently tonight he's going to run the gauntlet and face all four members of Kayentai, and if he wins, his prize will be that he gets five minutes alone in the ring with Mr. Yamaguchi-san. Cole asks Val why he wants to fight all of Kayentai, so clearly he hasn't been paying attention to the fact that they all conspired to chop his dick off. I guess he missed that minor detail over the past four weeks. After a commercial break, it's time for another trip to Draza's world. This time he's talking about how his mother got upset over the fact that he has so many crazy tattoos, and I'll just say that this segment is kind of funny looking back on it in 2017, because Draza literally has about five tattoos that don't even take up that much space on his body. Not nearly as crazy when compared to today's tattoo standards. And speaking of Draws, it is now time for our next Brawl for All semi-final bout, Draws versus Bradshaw. The winner of this fight gets to face Bart Gunn in the finals next week, so have fun with that. Round 1 basically consisted of both guys taking wild swings at each other, with JBL landing more of them than draws, including one straight left hand that staggered old puke. The WWF's unofficial scoring had JBL ahead 5-0 after the first minute. In Round 2, draws came out swinging, nailing JBL with two stiff shots to the face. Bradshaw was able to recover and land some shots of his own, but then Draws scored a successful takedown right as the round ended. For some reason, the unofficial scoring still had JBL ahead 10-5 after the round, even though it seemed like Draws should at least be tied with him, but fuck it, it's the brawl for all, and I have no idea what's going on. By the time round 3 began, you could tell that both guys were completely out of gas. Draws attempted another takedown but failed, and both men basically just threw the occasional punch at each other because they were so winded. When the fight concluded, the judges deliberated and awarded the victory to JBL, which, I will note, got quite the chorus of boos from the crowd as they were firmly rooting for Draws, probably because he was the clear underdog coming in. It should be noted that Draws has been all over Raw the past two weeks and seems like he could be primed for a nice push at this point, but when you see where his storyline ends up going, well, it unfortunately ends up getting pretty shit-tastic over in Draws' world. But anyway, given the results of tonight's Brawl for All semifinals, we will now have Bart Gunn and JBL squaring off in the finals next week to determine who will win the whole thing. And if you're a fan of Mauro Ranallo, let's just say that you should be looking forward to that encounter. We then cut to footage of Al Snow at a bar somewhere. In case you've forgotten, we haven't seen Al Snow in the WWF since King of the Ring when he and Head lost a tag match to the team of Too Much thanks to crooked refereeing from Jerry Lawler. Al is sitting on a bar stool lamenting his life, and then he starts yelling at Head for being too drunk. This is exactly as funny as it sounds. 
You know, I remember reading Mick Foley's book and feeling sorry for Al at certain points because Foley makes fun of him so often. But going back and watching Al in the WWF actually makes me think that Foley took it too easy on him. His segments so far have been just terrible. After commercial break, we then get another pre-taped vignette where Dustin Runnels tells us that, instead of watching Raw, we should be curled up with a good book instead, preferably the New Testament, because he is coming back. Dustin will likely be very pleased to know that quite a few people did turn off Raw on this evening, mainly thanks to what was being shown on Nitro, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Up next, Sable angrily storms to the ring and grabs a microphone. She tells Jacqueline to get her ass to the ring, but instead, Jackie and Mark Merrow show up on the Titantron. Jackie says that she won't fight Sable tonight, but she and Mark are free for SummerSlam. She then challenges Sable to a two-on-two transgender, pardon me, intergender match, and Sable can pick any partner she wants. The oddities then proceed to attack Merrow and Jackie until the camera cuts away, and frankly, if you can somehow allow two seven-footers and a 400-pound guy in a mask to sneak up on you, then you just deserve that beating. After another commercial break, it is now time for Val Venus to run the gauntlet against each member of Kayentai, with his reward being five minutes alone with Mr. Yamaguchi-san if he is able to defeat all four members of the faction. Also, in an effort to make Val even more gross, he comes to the ring holding a flesh-colored super soaker, and in case you're wondering why that was never an official color for that squirt gun, well, just take one look at it and you'll know why. The first member of Kayentai to go up against Val Venus is Men's Teo, and the big Valboski ends up dispatching him in only a few minutes by pinning him with the Fisherman Suplex. Also, Wikipedia helpfully informs me that Val's version of that move is actually called the Big Package, and that's probably one of the least subtle sexual innuendos you will ever see. The next man to enter the gauntlet is Funaki. He immediately climbs to the top rope and goes for a crossbody, but Val catches him in midair, power slams him, and scores the pinfall in roughly 10 seconds. I almost felt bad for Funaki there, but then I remembered he actually ends up being employed by the company for the next 12 years, so I think he'll be alright. Dick Togo is the next member of Kayentai to go one-on-one with Val, and yes, as several people have pointed out over the years, they did a severed penis angle with Kayentai, and one of the group's members is literally named Dick Togo. We should have seen it coming all along. Togo lasts longer than the other two Kayentai members, but he ultimately ends up falling victim to the money shot, so Val has now defeated three members of the group. The fourth and final entrant into the gauntlet is your WWF light heavyweight champion, Taka Michinoku, the man who turned heel on Val two weeks prior and joined Kayentai because he wanted to defend the honor of his sister, Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. Val and Taka then actually proceed to have a pretty solid little match. The finish came when Val went for a second rope elbow drop, but Taka moved out of the way. Taka then picked Val up and hit him with his finisher, the Michinoku driver, and that was surprisingly enough to pick up the three count and give Val Venus his first ever loss in the WWF. Granted, he lost after fighting four people in one night, but in case you want to impress your friends, you can now tell them that Taka Michinoku is the man who ended Val Venus's three-month undefeated streak. After the match, Kayentai ganged up on Val and started beating on him. They held his arms back so his head was exposed, and then Mrs. Yamaguchi-san emerged from backstage. If you recall last week's episode of Raw, Val dumped her during his segment with John Wayne Bobbitt, so it appears that she is out for revenge. 
Unfortunately, she's still a horrendous actress, even by wrestling standards, and when she slaps Val, it looks incredibly half-hearted. Val then rolls out of the ring and grabs the aforementioned flesh-colored super soaker, and he proceeds to squirt Kayentai, Yamaguchi-san, and Mrs. Yamaguchi-san with it, as Jerry Lawler says that the liquid inside of it is, quote, DNA. Boy, along with the Bill Clinton segments, they're really going crazy with these semen references tonight, huh? Vince Russo, you creative genius. And once again, even though she's covered in what is purported to be jism, Mrs. Yamaguchi-san just walks away with a completely blank expression on her face as though she couldn't care less about what just transpired. If getting sprayed with semen and almost seeing a man get his penis chopped off can't cause you to show any emotion, well, I'm afraid your Emmy chances are probably rather limited. Call me crazy. And now it's time for your main event segment of the evening. Earlier tonight, Stone Cold Steve Austin called out The Undertaker, and it appears that the dead man is ready to answer the challenge because the lights go out and his music plays. However, in a bit of a strange moment, we do not actually see Taker walk down the aisle. Instead, we get a quick cut over to the ringside area, where we see a camera angle of The Undertaker from behind, standing on the steel stairs, wearing his usual black jacket. From there, Stone Cold makes his way to the ring. The Undertaker turns around, and we see that the reason why he was only shown from behind is because it was actually Kane wearing The Undertaker's jacket. So here's what you have. Kane is wearing his red mask, but he's also wearing The Undertaker's customary all-black outfit, so there's actually confusion among the commentators as to who it actually is. Jim Ross says that it must be Kane, but Jerry Lawler thinks it's The Undertaker. In actuality, I'm pretty sure that it's Kane, but they do a good job of disguising him by actually putting fake tattoos that resemble The Undertaker's tattoos on Kane's arm, so kudos to them for the attention to detail, I suppose. Anyway, Austin and the Undercaner brawl through the crowd, including walking right past a fan who is cosplaying as one of the Bushwhackers for some reason, and they make their way over to the hearse that Stone Cold drove into the arena earlier. Austin gets the better of Kane and tosses him into the back of the hearse. He closes the back door, and then he walks over to the driver's seat. But the Undertaker is already there. Taker drives off with his brother in the back seat as Austin looks on confused, much like we the viewers, who are left to wonder if the Undertaker and Kane are in cahoots for the seventh consecutive week. At this point, this storyline is pretty much the Ross and Rachel will-they-or-won't-they equivalent in professional wrestling. And if that sounds sexy to you, well then, you should probably seek therapy. But anywho, there's more to cover on this episode of Raw, but some big stuff happened on Nitro as well, so with that in mind, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, Nitro scored a surprising ratings victory over Raw, narrowly beating the WWF in the ratings 4.70 to 4.55. Well, for the second week in a row, Nitro was victorious, and this time, they absolutely destroyed Raw 4.99 to 4.16. That overwhelming victory was almost entirely due to one wrestler in particular, but we'll get to him in just a moment. For comparison's sake, here's what you could have been watching instead of Raw over on the TNT Network. 
Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Sick Boy. Alex Wright and Disco Inferno versus High Voltage ended in a no contest. Raven and Perry Saturn defeated Chris Canyon and Horus. Scott Norton defeated Scott Putsky, the Scott Powers Explode. Kurt Hennig defeated Dean Malenko. I bet that was actually a pretty good match. Chris Jericho defeated Chavo Guerrero and Stevie Ray to retain his WCW World Television Championship. Bret Hart defeated Diamond Dallas Page by disqualification to retain his WCW United States Championship. And Goldberg defeated the Giant by disqualification to retain his WCW World Heavyweight Championship. One other noteworthy moment on this show was Eddie Guerrero coming to the ring with a suitcase and cutting a work shoot promo on Eric Bischoff, so I'll play a quick clip of that for you here. And the other reason is because I have two kids and a wife that I have to support. Well, you know what? If losing my dignity means having to put up with WCW, NWO red, black or white, whatever the hell it is, I don't care. So Eric Bischoff, I'm telling you this right now. I want out of my contract, no matter what it takes, who I got to speak to, or what it is, okay? And here, let me save you some time, Eric Bischoff. I'm throwing coffee on myself. As far as I'm concerned, Eric Bischoff, you can take this job and shove it up your you-know-what. The part where Eddie poured coffee on himself was apparently based on a real-life incident with Eric Bischoff, where Eddie requested his release from WCW, and Bischoff got so upset that he threw his coffee cup on the ground. Some of it accidentally splashed Eddie, so the rumor going around the wrestlers was that Bischoff threw coffee at him, so they were running with that angle. Either way, I found it to be pretty interesting since, spoiler alert, Eddie Guerrero wanting out of his contract will end up playing out in real life about a year and a half from now. Stay tuned for that. But anyway, at this point, you're probably asking what it was that caused WCW to completely destroy Raw in the ratings. Well, this episode of Nitro featured the WCW debut of a former WWF champion. With Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff, and the Disciples standing in the ring, they were soon interrupted by a familiar face, and let's see if you can figure out who it is. I'll play about two minutes of this person's promo for you here, but just keep in mind that I'm snipping this down from what turns out to be a roughly 14-minute promo. Justice unties my hands 
so that I can continue to fulfill a destiny set in motion upon that memorable day years ago. Your evilness, the evilness you embody and portray is intolerable. I am the one that has the power to destroy you. Check it out. Next week, same warrior time, same warrior place, same warrior channel. So there you have it, folks. It was the WCW debut of The Ultimate Warrior. Now, in fairness, when he first begins talking, the crowd is totally into it, and they get a sizable warrior chant going. But the problem is that he just kept kind of talking and talking and talking to the point that all of those cheers eventually began to dissipate pretty rapidly. And to make things a bit more silly, once his promo ended, a bunch of smoke filled the ring, warrior disappeared thanks to a trapdoor, and Tony Schiavone told the audience, quote, The warrior literally vaporized before our eyes. We then got what was basically a ripoff of the bat signal with the Warriors face paint logo in place of the Batman symbol. A tad goofy, to say the least. But it was hugely successful for the company, on this night anyway. According to the PW Torch's newsletter from that week, quote, The 20-minute segment with Warrior giving Hollywood Hogan a face-to-face speech fell into a quarter hour that drew a 6.4 rating, one of the highest ever in the history of Monday Night Wrestling, up to that point, obviously. The 6.4 more than doubled the 3.1 rating that Raw drew for its Brawl for All semifinal of Bart Gunn vs. Godfather. And not only was Warrior a huge draw on Nitro, but in what is a real testament to how much interest there was in him at the time, that week's episode of Thunder, which re-showed Warrior's debut, scored a 4.25 rating. That's right, Thunder beat Raw in the ratings at a time when the WWF is building up to what will be their most purchased SummerSlam in company history. For one week anyway, the Ultimate Warrior dominated the wrestling world. And on that note, let's go to the Raw Synopsis. This was not a great episode of Raw by any means, but I would say it was certainly a good one. Top to bottom, almost everything was watchable, maybe with the exceptions of that Tiger Ali Singh segment and the DOA tag match. But other than that, lots of good stuff, specifically Bart Gunn almost decapitating the Godfather. And yes, even though he's not that great of a wrestler, I will admit that I pop for the raw debut of Gangrel. I mean, come on, he comes up from hell for Christ's sakes. What more do you need? Also, because Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker had been tag team partners for the past three weeks, their rivalry had somewhat remained on pause, but now that they're no longer holding the belts together, it's fun to see the tension escalate between them as their SummerSlam match approaches. The final image of Austin looking confused as The Undertaker drives the hearse away is pretty great. The only thing that would have made it better is if they had actually played Highway to Hell at the end, like they did during the initial broadcast in 1998, but... As we discussed earlier, the WWE ain't shelling out the cash for that one. All in all, a really solid episode of Raw, which was unfortunately obliterated by Nitro, thanks to one legendary weirdo. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. 
Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, just like our new friend Marky B. Beth did, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And again, apologies if I'm butchering your name. And of course, if you do write a review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with a clip from the WWE Hatchet Job DVD called The Self-Destruction of the Ultimate Warrior, where several people, including Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff, and Gene Okerlund, discussed that first Warrior promo on Nitro. And let's never forget that, by the way. The WWE kissed Warrior's ass all over the place during his Hall of Fame appearance and subsequent death, but the company as a whole decided to create an entire DVD dedicated to completely burying the guy. Classy organization. Also, ignore the part of the clip where Mean Gene says that the ratings plummeted, because that's obviously total bullshit. They dropped after the Warrior's segment, not during the promo itself. Don't fall for that bullshit WWE narrative. But anyway, enjoy that clip. And I will catch you next time. On that day, you were great. I was ultimate. When he said that, I went, well, why would anybody want to buy a ticket? Then if you're going to tell everybody at home that you've already beaten me, I went, oh, my God, it was like the ultimate no-no in this business. And I think he kept talking for like another 10 minutes. The ultimate warrior more or less rambled, completely went into business for himself. And I remember Hogan and I kind of standing there, not wanting to look at each other and let the audience know that we were wondering what the hell was going on. The virtue of justice unties my hands so that I can continue to fulfill a destiny set in motion upon that memorable day years ago. I went, oh my God, we've self-destructed. Vince has to be at home laughing his ass off. A destiny beckoning the next superhero. It was laborious, repetitive, redundant. It was terrible. The ratings during that quarter hour sunk like a rock it died a slow miserable death in front of about 15,000 fans live and however many millions of people were watching 